0: What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of the professional athlete podcast. We are joined this week by ultra marathon running legend, Zach Bitter. Now, if you don't know who Zach is, suffice to say he can run a lot farther than you. And he really has become synonymous with the sport of elite endurance. And that's because at one point or another, he's held the world record for fastest hundred mile race furthest distance run in 12 hours and the fastest, this one blows my mind, fastest 100 miles run on a treadmill. Could you imagine? It kills me to run three, let alone to sit there for half a day in a room on a treadmill. It, that one to me is more mental than anything else. Zach is also the host of his own show, the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. So if you like what you hear from Zach today, make sure to check that out. That show's fantastic as well. What you'll also hear is that Zach is just a great guy, and he has some huge goals for 2021. And he's going to do them in the name of a fantastic cause. So make sure to listen to hear more about that. As I always say, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's listening. I'm having so much fun doing this. I hope you're enjoying it as well, and to everyone who's reached out uh, to show support, really appreciate it. So make sure to like, subscribe, and you know what? If you'd be so kind, tell a friend, folks. Okay, find someone you care about, let them know, help them, help them get a little uh, motivation in their life. All right, with the shameless plugs over, let's welcome Zach to the show. Here we go. <laughs> I got too much to do Yeah, I gotta get going I gotta talk to you yeah, It's time to start the show <laughs> Zach, welcome to the show Hey, thanks for having me on Yeah, it's a pleasure I, I'm really, really looking forward to this one uh, You know, the nature of what you do Is just so interesting to me uh, I can't wait to introduce listeners to kind of like the, just the incredible feats of endurance of Zach Bitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, an interesting sport. I think, uh, you know, I was certainly in the same camp as I think a lot of people who haven't done an ultra marathon before at one point in my life, where it's like, first of all, why would you do that? And second of all, I'll, I can't do that. So it's, it's kind of funny how things change over the years.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, you seem like such a likable, reasonable guy and it's like, why would he do this to himself? <laughs> you know, it just, I mean, just when I, when I look at some of the, the distances, hundred miles, 62 miles, 50 miles, um, it's just remarkable. And, and maybe that's even a, a great place to start for listeners who don't know what an ultra marathon is or ultra running. Uh, w- would you mind just kind of explaining like exactly what that entails?
1: Yeah, sure. The the sport I guess is pretty broad in terms of kind of what is included in it, which I think adds to like kind of the fun nature to it, especially as it kind of grows and there's lots more competition and things like that where You know, we're getting to the point where now you almost have to kind of pick some specialties and really put a lot of work in that or someone else is going to and then, you know, outwork you with their specifics to training and racing. But the the definition essentially would be anything beyond a marathon. So most people are going to consider like the 50 kilometer distance, kind of the entry to ultra Mm -hmm. In, in North America, kind of the big kind of target event to get to for a lot of folks tends to be the 100 mile distance. Although we have been seeing a bit of a surge in these 200 plus mile races in the last few years, there's much fewer options from those, but uh, they are getting popular too. So it can get pretty freakishly long from a structured standpoint, you see events not too uncommon, get up to six days. So you just see how far you can get in six days. You can you know, stop whenever you want, sleep whenever you want, but ultimately you're gonna get a number at the end of that six day time frame and that's your kind of result. So you know, depending on where your capacity is for sleep deprivation and just general like uh, <laughs> self-destruction can kind of depend on how you kind of approach some of those events. But you know some popular ones outside of the you know, that tend to be like 50 k, fifty mile or 80 k, 100 k, 100 miles. Um, You get into the timed event stuff. So you like 12 hours, six hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, six days. Um, Then you can get into these multi-stage things or these long kind of what they call like fastest known times where you're just doing a specific route. So there's not necessarily a like nice clean number tied to it, but it might be like a really Mm -hmm. cool traverse or um, there's an event. I'm actually currently just getting started preparing for called the transcontinental run where you run from San Francisco to New York. It's about 30, just under 3,100 miles. And, you know, kind of same rule. It's like you start the clock at the beginning and you do whatever you got to do to get from one side of the coast to the other. And at the end of the whole process, you have a specific number of days, hours, and minutes and seconds. And that's what you kind of take home with you as your result. So uh, yeah, I mean, this the sport is huge in, in that regard where there's a literally anything you can do in those frameworks. And then you also have flat stuff, 400 meter track races, which I've done quite a mm-hmm. few of. Then you have things that are going through the mountains. You have like one of the biggest, most popular hundred-milers or hundred-ish-milers called the Alta Trail Mount Blanc, uh, kind of over in Chamonix, and you know they go through the Alps and just you know up and down, up and down, over technical stuff. You know, it's it, there's such a wide variety when you look at even the just the terrain you have to learn to run on, uh, minus the distance and that sort of variable.
0: Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The more I looked into, you know, I was familiar with like the 50, the 100, the 62. Um, but as I was, you know, preparing for this interview, which was a lot of fun, I started seeing like all these time-based events. Mm. And I when I saw that it went past 24 hours, I was like, these people are nuts. <laughs> um, you know, so for you, I mean, w- w- which of these types of ultra events do you kind of maybe naturally gravitate to? Or, or what are you kind of starting to gravitate to? Uh, out of interest?
1: Yeah, my biggest focus over the, I guess, over my career, essentially, I definitely kind of phased into it, though, has been just flat runnable 100 milers. So whether that be kind of a runnable trail or something as controlled as a 400 meter track, or in the case of in 2019, I ran an event at the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called the Pettit Center, which was like a, I believe it's like 438 meters or something like that but it was hmm. built around speed skating rinks and hockey rinks. So they kept it like completely climate controlled. And, uh, you know, so you can, yeah, I, I like the runnable stuff. Um, that's kind of my first love with the sp- sport was running. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to skew away from the events that are going to have me, you know, hiking or scrambling a huge portion of the time. Cause I just haven't gotten quite as interested into that yet. Although I think hmm. it's a really, really cool side of the sport and perhaps something I'll give a little more attention to as, as I get a little further into things.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but th- this, this, uh, what did you call it? Transcontinental?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially a coast to coast run, coast-to-coast, um, from San yeah. Francisco to New York. Yeah.
0: So, okay. So w- w- what's the inspiration for that? And I, I mean, now I gotta, you know, I'm curious, like how, how long are you even, uh, forecasting something like that's going to take?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, it's a route I became familiar with kind of early in my career. And hmm. I just remember thinking to myself, oh, someday I want to do that. But that's about all the further I went. It was just like, at some point I'll do this, but it's kind of a, you know, it doesn't really like materialize or feel real until you actually kind of decide to actually do it and start putting like dates on the calendar and that sort of stuff. So I hadn't really found a great motivator uh, to do it. Up until the last couple of years, I think in the back of my mind, even early on, I kind of knew like this is something that's big enough, different enough from what I've done, logistically challenging enough. I'm going to need some sort of incentive or drive outside of just my own amb- ambition to do it, to really kind of yeah. motivate me to pull the trigger on it. And and a couple of years ago, I met a guy named Justin Wren, who uh, mm-hmm. he's a, mm-hmm. essentially a humanitarian, but he's also, uh, you know, a uh, mixed martial artist, uh, high caliber wrestler, just an amazing story. Um, you know, he grew up uh, just having a really rough time with, uh, you know, school and just making relationships and friends like that he was severely bullied yeah. and, and eventually just kind of found this avenue of just like, well, you know, I can't make people like me, but I can get really good at something and then people tend to like you. So he got really, really good at wrestling. He was, I think national champion, like internationally competitive wrestler and ultimately, you know, started competing in mixed martial arts, including the UFC and Bellator. And, and along the way, I think he recognized that, uh, you know he wasn't the only one who was having those type of situations in fact there were people who were much worse off than even he was in some of his worst days and he he kind of made it a mission or a goal of his a life goal so to speak to first find what he would consider the most forgotten people on planet earth which he identified as the pygmy tribe in the congo yeah and then ultimately started his uh his charity called fight for the forgotten where uh, it, it's a really cool kind of story because, you know, when people think of just kind of the simplicity of clean water, I mean, we all take it for granted, especially here in the United States, cause you just turn on your faucet and you got clean water. But, you know, if that goes away, you know, we're not talking about, let's figure this out in the next six to eight weeks and then get back to normal. This is like, we got to figure something out in the next couple of days or, yeah. you know, you know, water, clean water gathering in third world countries is such a. Uh, you know, a limiter to their progress because mm. if like essentially half of your group of people need to be spending their entire day gathering clean water, now all of a sudden like you're not even thinking about development. You're not thinking about building like farms and things like that. You're just trying to get to the next day. So uh, square one for him was kind of going into the Congo and um what First, is it? It's
0: like it's like Laszlo's hierarchy of needs. Exactly. Yeah. It's like if you if you can't get past just basic food and water, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's yeah. no energy or resources left to start talking about development, technological advancement.
1: Right. Yeah. You spend sixteen hours a day just getting that stuff, and then you, you don't got no time, yeah. no time to do anything else. So, I mean, the big hurdle for Justin in the beginning too was the uh, the pygmy tribe but was severely disadvantaged in the sense they didn't even have basic human rights. They were treated more more kid to animals than they were human beings. So he had to work closely mm. with the local government first, just to make sure, you know, everything he didn't just get taken away. Cause that's actually a big problem, I guess, with the charitable side of things where people want to make donations, they want to help. Mm. But if you just kind of like pump cash into it, you, you get like local governments or people who are suppressing these individuals who are just going to come in and take it. So you're basically right. making a donation to, you know, whatever group is causing a lot of the problems in the first place. So he had to go over there and the way he describes it to me is like, first you have to make the local government or whoever's kind of controlling things in the area, recognize that your presence and your efforts to help this group is also going to help them. So showing Hmm. them the benefit of it. And, you know, there's a variety of ways you can probably navigate that scenario, but that was his first step before he could do anything. Then, then it was building wells. So like once you can build wells in these areas, now, you know, Now you're in a situation where they have clean water and they can start spending more time and uh, or having some of their population and groups have more time to focus on other things, and uh, and then yeah, so that's turned into building like farms and things like that, buying land so that the the pygmy tribes actually have a place. Because at the time when he went over, they were essentially like stuffed in this really tiny plot of land. And it was so small, they would actually, when, when people would die, which was frequent, they would get to bury them literally right underneath where they were living. So there's like a mound of dead people that they were living on wow. top of. Yeah. So it's just an insane story. And he's been over there multiple times. He's gotten malaria and all sorts of different things in the process. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's just a super inspiring story. So yeah, yeah when I met him and uh, kind of heard what he was up to and had a chance to help kind of volunteer at some of the stuff and really see firsthand some of the impact he's had on, on people with his story, his message and everything he's done. Uh, I was like, this is the, this is the, this is the driver here. <laughs> so that's what got me uh, to kind of pull the trigger and put a date on it. And uh, September 1st is when we're going to start, but it's going to be for, um, essentially it's going to be to raise awareness and donations, uh, subscriptions to their charity and their foundation, uh, all in effort to kind of see how fast I can get across Too the, the current record is, uh, 42 days and six hours by name, a guy named Pete Castlenick. <laughs> so if you do the math, that's about just over 72 miles a day. So I have no idea oh if God. I'll be able to get anywhere near that or what exactly I will produce on a daily basis in an end time frame. But, uh, I think there's a chance I could stay on track with that. So I'll be loosely thinking about that along the way, but making sure I, you know, get across the country and, and kind of, stay true to the real purpose, which is the awareness and stuff for fight for the forgotten.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, I always love these stories of, you know, going after, I mean like this to the average person sounds like an unfathomable physical feat. Um, but when you have that purpose behind it, uh, one, I think people get really excited about, you know, like one, it ra- it does raise a lot of awareness. Cause you're like, what about this is so important? This man's willing to run across the country 70 plus miles a day. Um, but for you, I have to imagine, you know, on something that long, there's, there's going to be some moments where you're going to need that, that greater purpose, uh, to dig down and push on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I was just, I was thinking about that the other day. I was talking to my wife. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm more than capable of quitting on myself. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, when you have a, uh, Big uh, a big driver outside of like your own your own ambitions, and I think it really does right. help with that. And and uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a great uh, thing to kind of stay motivated and get through some some lows that will ultimately happen on you know probably a daily basis at times, but certainly over the course of the entire project, it'll be good to know that it's uh, you know do, I'm doing it for something bigger than myself. And and you yeah. know the interesting thing too, just about ultra marathon running, and it is a pretty selfish endeavor uh, in the sense that. You know uh the number of hours you spend preparing you know, that's got to come from somewhere and it likely pulls at least partly from you know social relationships and things that you could be doing mm. outside of uh you know the training things like that and then ultimately on race day a lot of times you're you know you're the one out there doing all the work from a physical standpoint and getting the accolades of whatever accomplishment you get whether it be crossing the finish line of a hundred mile race breaking a record setting a course record um you know beating your own personal best uh, but there's a lot of people that go into that, between the volunteers at the races, the race directors, the volunteers who work at aid stations, your own crew. You usually bring a crew of people who are going to kind of jump from aid station to aid station and help you out along the way with fluids and fuel and then ultimately sometimes even pace you. Yeah. you know, It's it's, uh, it's it's asking a lot from, from lots of other people in order for these things to kind of happen. So, you know, w- one other big uh, kind of catalyst to trying to do this sooner rather than later in my career is just that I've gotten, you know, over 10 years of ultra marathon running experience under my belt. And, uh, it just felt like a time to kind of do something that was a little more, uh, for something else versus my own kind of ambitions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, and that's one of the things too, that's been really fascinating. The more I learned about your career, I mean, 10 years of running these incredibly physically demanding races you know so it brings to mind all sorts of questions around uh you know durability Mm -hmm. um injury prevention but you know one of the things that I want to ask when you said that this guy ran 70 plus miles a day on average you know when when you go out and you run on a single day an event of somewhere around that length I mean how beat up are you the next day
1: yeah, and that's an interesting topic actually because for the you know, to date I've done all single day ultra marathons. So like okay. I'm done within a 24 hour time frame.
0: Yeah.
1: And the goal for those is essentially to wring yourself dry. So like you're gonna be behind on nutrition just because you're not gonna eat enough to stay on top of that. You're you know you're gonna inherit a huge calorie deficit that you'll make up in the following days, but you're setting yourself up to essentially not have to do anything for the days, if not weeks afterwards. So you go in there knowing at the end of it, the next day you might barely be able to walk. Uh, Hmm. You can't do that for a project like this. So you need to be able to get up and do it again, essentially the next day. If things go well, I'll essentially run, you know, six plus weeks of an ultra marathon every day. So I need to be able to do it (laughs) sustainably enough so I can get up the next day and do it again. So that means means, uh, staying on top of fluid and hydration. The way Mm -hmm. I like to describe it is if I, was just not moving at all, just kind of hanging out, working at an office or something like that, I might burn about 2,000 calories in a day. So okay. if I decided to just cut my calorie intake down by 1,000 calories and just eat 1,000 calories a day, I would notice that quite a bit. It would be a huge reduction. It would I would be hungry quite a bit, most likely. Uh, and I would know to make a change after a while, assuming you know I didn't need to lose a bunch of weight. Yeah. Now you put that in the context of running 70-plus miles a day where I might be burning 10,000-plus calories. Now I have a 1,000-calorie deficit there. I hardly notice it because I'm already eating way past satiated. I'm already eating way more than I normally would on a daily basis. But I'm yeah. still potentially losing weight to the same degree as I would on that scenario of um, 2,000 calories down to 1,000 calories. Right. So it's something that's a really kind of probably – semi moving target. And one, I have to probably narrow down to get some ballpark numbers on before I start this, just so I know like, Hey, by this strategy, um, is going to have me arrive in New York, 20 pounds lighter than I already am. And I'm, I'm not really looking to lose 20 pounds at this point in my, right in my life, uh, or at any point in my life for that matter. But, um, Yeah. So it's like, there's just like a lot of difference there where you can't go into it thinking on a daily basis, I can inherit this big calorie deficit and expect for it to go well long-term. Uh, I have to make sure the impact forces are going to be a little lighter than they would be if I was running, like say all out for 72 miles. Uh, so that just means a lot more kind of walking breaks, a lot more like maybe like light running versus kind of like purposeful striding out. Uh yeah and just and just it's injury mitigation for the most part. I think the physiological training stimulus there's going to be some value in doing some kind of short-term simulations in the weeks and months leading into it. Uh but ultimately I think the fitness side of thing is more like a lifetime of running and that's where I'm going to kind of get it across the country from a physical standpoint. The rest yeah. is just making sure I don't turn up, you know, acquire an injury that's so bad that I can't move forward um so pete i actually interviewed him for my podcast uh a few weeks ago and i just asked him like awesome. what was what was his kind of approach with that and he was pretty actually i was actually kind of surprised how laid back he was about the whole project in it's in general but he he got out fairly aggressive and i think he was hitting closer to 80 miles a day the first few days and then he got to the sierras where you know you're going to go uphill for a good chunk of that before you kind of peak out there and then start coming back down before entering like Nevada and heading towards Utah. Yeah. And he said, going up the Sierras, uh, he just overdid it a bit. And just the difference in flexion piece from the Midwest. So he's done a oh, lot of, a okay. lot of paved flat stuff. So he's yeah. really built and designed to handle a big training load from that. But just hmm. the variance of having that, like maybe six to 8% incline consistently for a majority of the day, aggravated the tendon that kind of runs down his shin onto his foot. Um, And, and he actually had to take a day off, I think within the first week. So when you think about that, like he actually averaged closer to like 74, 75 miles a day. Uh, he just had to take a day off because he overreached a little bit early. So that was one of his big pieces of advice is like, you know, be open to kind of being a little conservative in the early stages, just because, you know, you want to make sure that if, if you can avoid having to take a day off, that's going to pay pay off big time versus, you know, trying to grab a few extra miles here and there in those first couple of weeks and digging yourself into a hole you have a hard time getting out of.
0: Yeah, it's just I mean, the sheer number of I mean, like literally footfalls, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and if you throw in like a new stimulus like that, like an incline um, and you haven't trained for that. Oh, I'm just thinking, you know, like, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of people who are listening who are Probably pulled an Achilles tendon or yeah, yeah. have had shin splints mm-hmm. and just the daunting thought of having that happen like a weekend and being like, oh my God, like I am in Nevada. <laughs> you know, I got to get to the other side of the country. It's like, how do you, how could you deal with that? So f- from your standpoint, as you think through this, and it sounds like you are talking to people uh, who've either done it or done similar events, like w- what is your, your injury mitigation strategy?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, there's a few things I'm going to be doing kind of going into it. I'm going to probably try to add like somewhere in the neighborhood about five pounds of extra like just kind of lower body muscle in the months mm. leading into it. Uh, just from a, like there's nothing fast about this. In fact, I'll be running. I'll be moving when you add in kind of average paces, roughly, probably close to twice as slow as I would race 100, a 100, flat 100 miler at. So, so there's, there is like, there's no reason that like, you know, there's no reason for me to try to get down to what would be considered kind of my, my goal race weight for a typical like single day ultra marathon. I'm better off being a little stronger and a little more durable. So like I'm going to focus like heavily on some kind of key areas, like kind of ankle spots, making sure my ankles are mobile, but very strong, uh, Other things just like, uh, you know, the quadricep strength and things like that, especially around the knee area, um, hip mobility and strength like that. So a lot of things that I'll be doing to kind of help with that will be mobility stuff for those areas alongside kind of building strength within um, some of the kind of core lifts like uh, squats, deadlifts, kettlebell swings, box steps and that sort of stuff and and fairly heavy weight relative to what I can do uh, Hmm. along the way and, and then so you,
0: so you, do you, do you always, um, apologies for interrupting. Do, do you like, as, as you're prepping for a normal, like one day event where you are going to go all out is strength training, something that you, uh, typically incorporate into your training throughout the year.
1: Yeah, it is. I'll just probably lean into it a little more for this particular project. Um, yeah. cause I think it's going to be, I mean, it's durability, like durability is the name of the game here. If you stay injury free, it won't matter if I'm, 140 pounds or 150 pounds or somewhere in between like it's gonna be whichever one of those it puts me in the strongest most durable positions to stay upright get up the next day and do it again and and not not break down too much
0: yeah so i mean i I had fun looking back at, at what i could uh find of your running career i think you've done at least nearly 60 races uh by my count and maybe it's more um you know how how have you uh, been so durable over the long run? Because it just seems like the sheer amount of just pounding you're putting on your legs in just a single event, and then doing multiple events over the course of the year. You know, are there things that you're doing throughout the year that you feel have been really pivotal um, to kind of your sustained durability?
1: Yeah, there's uh, it's interesting because, I mean, you do see a pretty wide landscape of durability within the endurance running community. It, it does seem like everyone's kind of destined to get injured at some point. Uh, but there are folks who it's pretty rare and there's folks where it seems like it's just a matter of time every year. They're going to pick up some sort of thing that keeps them from getting to a race where I've been really fortunate. The majority of my running career in general, I had a kind of a bigger hiccup my sophomore year in college where I missed an entire indoor outdoor season and oh, okay. I had some, some training where I, some Achilles tendonitis stuff earlier in my post high school introduction to collegiate running, uh, stuff. Um, but since then I've really, since I've been starting altering, I've really only had one injury that's really been significant in the sense where it kind of canceled some, uh, some long-term race plans. Uh, yeah. and, but I tend to be, a type of person I think who just responds well to a pretty high volume of training like that hmm. doesn't break me down nearly as much as say like short intervals would just and, like physiologically that's just one of your uh, benefits or advantages yeah I probably have my parents to thank more than anything for that it's like one of those yeah, things yeah. where it's like you look across the landscape of runners and um, you do have like a fair bit of a variance in terms of like whether someone's kind of a speed responder or a volume responder I've got friends who it's like If they go up above 70 miles a week training, it's almost a guarantee they're going to get some sort of overuse injury, but they can just Mm. bang out short interval session after short interval session and bounce right back and be ready to do it the next day. Whereas I'm kind of a bit more on the opposite side. If you start stringing together short interval after short interval, after short interval, I'm probably going to get dinged up or just start to Mm. kind of regress because I won't recover from it as quickly. But I could go out and do back-to-back long runs day in and day out and make it from one day to the next without feeling like I have a whole lot of injuries creeping up on me. So um, that's that's probably part of the reason why I ended up in ultra marathon running in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Well, and you know um,
0: how much of the draw for ultra marathon running for you is mental. And here's why I ask for someone like me, like kind of on this topic, I'm certainly much more in the camp of like quick twitch, you know, Mm -hmm. all growing up, I was drawn to short sprints, jumping, what have you. Um, the thought of like having to go out and run a mile again right now, I'm like, oh, um, so for you, you know, knowing that the marathon exists, like how much of the draw to the, to the ultra community was mental? Like, is there a mental aspect to this that like, is, is it about the challenge?
1: Um, you know, what, what draws you to it? Yeah, it's definitely evolved over the years. I think like in the early days, it was just kind of this mindset of, um, you know, my favorite long or my favorite workout in college and the years after college was just, you know, running relatively slow, long miles. I always loved our Sunday morning long run in college. And then the first couple of years after I basically only did those type of things. I kind of cut speed workout altogether for a while yeah. before I started kind of taking training a little more seriously in the sense of just trying to you know, kind of peak for actual races again. And, um, so that, that, that was definitely kind of, a maybe a good introduction to ultra marathoning when, when that's kind of your favorite workout and you don't have a problem getting motivated to do it. It just Mm. makes sense to peak for a race. That's like, you know, 50 miles or further, uh, you know, as I kind of got into the sport though, and you start to kind of just see like the whole, the whole process a few times in a row, I started gravitating more away from like, Oh, this is just a sport I'm better at than I am any other sport. Therefore it's what I should spend my time on. And I got mm. much more interested in just kind of like the whole approach to saying, okay, this is the race I'm excited to do. What exactly do I need to do between now and that race, whether that be like four months, six months, or whatever time frame it really is, and just kind of like the planning, the organization and the building process. I really like to look at that and see like, okay, when I do these workouts, this is what I get in return for from a fitness standpoint. And then just shuffling yeah. things around to the point where how am I putting myself in the best position to have my best race and looking at it less as like, okay, I'm going to go into this race and try to beat some or I'm going to try to go in this race and beat a specific time, but more about, I really want to see like, you know, what works best for me. I'm, I'm really curious with that stuff. I'm, I've tried a variety of different things and I have some suspicions as what likely is going to work best for me in most cases. Uh, but that part is really fun for me to kind of see that progress along the, the, the the buildup. So I've gotten to a point now where like, if I have a bad race, I'm not nearly as maybe disappointed as I would have been in the, in prior years earlier in my career where I look at it like, Oh, that was a waste of four months of training. (laughs) I look at it more as like, okay, what did I learn from this process Yeah, Uh, and take inventory of that stuff and then kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, how can we fine tune it? I, I really like that part of the sport and being that ultra marathoning is a bit more of a niche sport, a fringe sport, even though it has grown quite a bit in popularity over the years. It's Mm -hmm. just very understudied relative to most endurance events. So so there's a lot more room, I think, for anecdotal type of uh, exploration and just like finding what works versus, oh, we've got hundreds of great studies on the 10 kilometer race. And, you know, in any ideal situation, this is basically the way to do it. Um, you yeah. just don't have that with ultra marathon, partly just because of what we talked about earlier, such a vast range. Like it's the, how you train for a 50 kilometer is going to be quite a bit different than how you would train for like the Transcon run that I'm about to do. And then everything in between. So there's just a lot more room, I think for curiosity, for speculation, for like, you know, we're still very much, I guess what I'm saying still very much finding what is ideal in most hmm. cases versus kind of having to kind of narrow it down to the individual level and respond to your own lifestyle and your own goals and your own strengths and weaknesses and ultimately developing a plan that's going to work for you.
0: Yeah. And that's so cool because to your point, it really is kind of uncharted territory for to make a terrible pun. But um, yeah. you know, I, I guess knowing that how much of your success to date do you think is just kind of like physical talent? versus your ability and, and like the enjoyment you take in like the strategy, the build up, the mapping out the, the testing and learning on yourself over time, like to, to what do you attribute, uh, you know, as to kind of like the key to your success?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Cause I think like when you square my ultra running, uh, race resume with my like high school and collegiate racing stuff, it would be, Pretty clear that you know no one would argue that I was a better high school and collegiate runner than I am an ultra marathon runner. So there does seem to be at least some kind of maybe I don't know like uh, difference where I'm I just tend to get a little or I regress a little less as the distances get longer perhaps or or mm. it could just be something completely different too where you know there's a different population of people competing in ultra marathons than there typically are and in standard endurance races and we don't necessarily know like where the limits are to human potential in a lot of these events yet because it is a little less you know you whittle down the population by the time you get up to 100 miles of number of people who are willing to do it much less even take a shot at it more than once or at all so there's some of that I'm sure and I think a big part of it though is just you know, finding a purpose in the sport. And Mm. even if that changes, recognizing what it truly is and being honest with yourself about that. So you're not just kind of kidding yourself about why you're doing it and trying to trick yourself into doing the work. And I think when you find those real authentic reasons to be doing it, it's going to be incentivize you to do things the way that you know is right for you. And Mm. that's going to be more likely to keep you healthy, less injury prone, and ultimately excited to be doing what you're doing. And in a sport like ultra marathoning where the intensity is drastically lower, it's not necessarily something where you have to be super young. So there's not this like really tight window of time where like if I don't figure things out by age 26, I'm done because my sweet spot is in the next like five years. And I really need to be like fine tuned by then and be able to really focus on development versus like finding where my strengths and weaknesses are. So ultra running thing, I think, is just a little longer timeline to do that. And if you do it right, you end up in a scenario like where I am, where I've got, uh, you know, over 10 years of ultra marathon racing and training with very little injury. Uh, You know, that just adds up. It's like a lifetime of training stimulus where you kind of know, you know a lot more about you, you know a lot more about your fitness, you know, like when it's appropriate to reach and not reach. And you can just really fine tune things a lot more intimately than you maybe would have been early in the career. So, I think a lot of my success also has to do with just, you know, the ability to find a sustainable approach for me that has kept me in the sport as long as it has, you know, versus, you know, what might happen with folks who kind of get into it and overreach early on and have a great couple of years, but then kind of fall away because they can't stay healthy or stay motivated to keep doing what they originally started doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you don't mind me asking, and I'm sure it's evolved over time, but for you now at this point in your career, like kind of what is that driving purpose?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a combination of things at this point. It's uh, it's like I said before, I really do still get excited about sitting down and planning out how am I going to like build out this training plan. Yeah. Uh, I'm very fortunate that the sport I do has that vast variety. So if I start getting stagnant in the preparation required for say a flat hundred miler. I can go do something in the mountains, which is going to be a completely different experience for the most part, or just a different distance altogether. And what I found, especially as I got later in my career, is that is a very important tool that I'll use where if I spend a good amount of time kind of doing a few cycles of training for a specific type of event, it's in my best interest usually to step away from that for maybe half a year and do something completely different. Because then when I come back to it, that excitement's back and I'm really ready to put in the work and do it at my best versus kind of just going through the motions and uh, normalizing, uh, a slightly less than ideal buildup. Uh, so that's really helpful. Just kind of having access to that. It's not like if I were just like a professional 10 K runner, there's only so much wiggle room there. It's like, I got to do what I got to do to be best at the 10 K and that might not yeah. change much. So I think that's a lot more mentally challenging than say, just being kind of like a multi-surface multi-distance ultra marathon runner. Um, it'll be, I'll be curious to see how that evolves over the next like decade or so. As, like I said, the sport continues to grow, gets more competitive. I mean, there might be a scenario where in order to be, you know, a quote unquote elite athlete in the sport of ultra marathon, you have to decide, Hey, I want to be a hundred K specialist, or I want to be a mountain hundred miler specialist and really spend the majority of your career focusing on that stuff. Um, but other stuff too, is just like, I'm, I'm a curious person. So, you know, early on in my career, I got really interested in just, finding out how fast I could run a controlled hundred mile course. So I've been fortunate that over those years I've been able to make incremental progress in that. So there hasn't been huge stalling points where I, I said, okay, enough is enough. I've found my limit. I still mm. got I'm still at a point where I think I can go faster. And yeah, as long as amazing. that yeah, as long as that is there, I think I'll always be motivated to kind of take another swing at it. So that's a big part of it too is I've got this kind of, I guess, appetite Uh, not necessarily to compete with other people all the time, but just to see where my limitations are and find that, you know, walk away from the sport someday thinking, yeah, I got every last second out of that event and I can definitely hang my hat on that.
0: Yeah. Well, and for you, you know, as you kind of assess where you are right now, I mean, understanding endurance is different than, you know, some of these, you know, high impact sports where the, the average NFL career is like three to four years, you know, endurance, you can do it for a lot longer. Like, where do you feel like you are in terms of kind of like your peak racing ability? I think you said you're still getting faster. Um, do you expect that there will be a point where that'll start to plateau or like, do you feel like you've kind of got it mapped out and you've been patient enough
1: that you can kind of just keep just getting a little bit better each year? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a, a little more of a fuzzy timeline, I think with ultra marathoning. I mean, we've got a, a guy, a specific example, Jeff Browning, who's, Close to 50 years old, and he's still running some of the best hundred milers in his career. So amazing! It, it does seem like it's a pretty drawn out timeline. And and yeah. you know, as health and nutrition and recovery practices and techniques, technology improves, you know, you start you see all the sports kind of stretching out a little longer in terms of how long some of these players can make it, even in the high impact sports. So, uh, I think if I'm honest with myself, though, I've probably got another like say five to ten years where I could really push the needle on what I could do on like say a flat hundred miler. Which I'm um, sure
0: is a terrifying
1: statement for everyone else who's competing against you. Like, oh, <laughs> well, that might depend on the course. There's some five, mountain five guys. to 10 years. <laughs> there, there's some, there's some mountain trail guys who are like, yeah, but let them come out here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll, yeah, different ball game a little we'll bit. Sh- we'll show them the way up this mountain. You gotcha. know, the, so there's, there's definitely some of that. And, um, but yeah, I think, uh, the interesting thing about that is there's also another event I'm really interested in. I just haven't had a, I think a great opportunity at my career to really fine tune what's going to work well for me in terms of preparation as well as just mental execution is this twenty four hour event where you see how far you can get in twenty four hours. Yeah, have you done that yet? I've done them, but they've all been like like epic blow ups essentially. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So, like, I actually, to be fair. I've done two where it was essentially just, I'm going to jump in this thing and see what happens. And after the second one of those, I was like, okay, this, this particular event requires its very own, very particular buildup and kind of a training cycle. And, you know, I have to really be focused on that alone versus I'm going to really get good for this hundred miler and then jump in one of these and see what happens kind of a mindset. So I've really only done one where I actually like set out to peak for it. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes, I think, in hindsight. Uh, but that's kind of how I've done a lot of these things, too, is you you do it for the first time. And when you step away and look at it, even if it is a decent result, uh, you can say, like, OK, this is what I would have done differently to improve this. This is what I would have done differently. And you just gather a lot of uh, like lessons to kind of learn from and then fine tune as many of them as you can, try again. Whittle that list of failures and unsuccessful things down smaller to get to the point where there's hardly any or any of them. And then that's when you probably have your best race. So I'm just very early on in that process. So I who knows, maybe I'll need a few more uh struggle fests out there for 24 hours before I really find a find a good one. But that's something I'm excited to do. It's also an event that I think you can be a little older yet and still be quite successful at. So uh i'm i'm somewhat leaning on the whole transcon experience to almost kind of be a little bit of a paradigm shift in terms of the mental aspect of the sport for me to really help me maybe better wrap my head around okay 24 hours of running this pace i'm going to go through the night so sleep deprivation is a reality and just all mm-hmm. the things that are unique to that distance i think there'll be some takeaways from the transcon even though my plan is to sleep every night during the transcon except for perhaps the last night, if I'm getting close enough to New York and it, right. you're it gonna was, push Yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. But up until then, you know, I'm probably going to be pretty, pretty smart with, uh, trying to sleep, but I think it's, uh, there'll be a lot of, uh, uh, kind of, I think relative things about that. That'll kind of put me in a position to maybe minimize what it will actually take to properly execute a 24 hours. So that's something I'm kind of excited about doing. And I'm not, I couldn't tell you what age you peek out at that. There's there, there's, uh, you know, it's probably somewhere in the upper 40s or so before you get to a point oh, where now, now you have, you know, younger folks who have also had enough time in the sport where they can really maximize it, or we'll see more people just focusing on that specific event and making it difficult to stay competitive and all that stuff that kind of comes with the, like progress and development within a specific sport.
0: Hmm. Well, and with like this kind of, I mean, because it's, you know, I hear about ultra marathoning or ultra running, I guess, way more in the last five years mm-hmm. than I ever did before. I mean, if you would have said ultra running, I would have no clue what you're talking about. Um, do you see a path, and I, apologies if this is an ignorant question, but is there a path for this eventually to be like an Olympic event? You know, is it is it trending in that direction maybe for any of the distances on
1: flat surfaces or – yeah, I think it there I think it'll probably will be at some point. Uh so much mm-hmm. of that is political though. So it's like it's really a little goofy. The the weird thing is in the sport of ultra marathon running this most recent surge, there's been different waves throughout history where the sport's gotten more popular and then kind of like settled back down into the background and then kind of popped back up. So we're definitely currently on an upswing, which more or less kind of started right when I kind of got into the sport, like unrelated to anything I was doing. But like, it no, just, come I just, just happened so <laughs> happen to be jumping in when it started to get popular again. But it got way more popular at a much faster rate on mm. a lot of the trail side things. So the oh. the hard part about doing an Olympic sport is a lot of times they want to make those type of events fairly controlled so there's not huge variance when you go from one country to the next you're not creating like this massive like home court advantage so to speak yeah so that would put us more likely to want to do something like a 100 kilometer or a 24 hour where you can make a course for 100k or 24 hours almost identical from one country to the next every mm. four years so there's some precedent there's some comparability and that sort of thing yeah so it may need to be in one of those two events since currently hmm. 100K and uh, 24 Hours both have world championship events, which is kind of the step before you would become an Olympic sport. Right. Uh, that So that may help out. I mean, there's also 50 kilometer world championships and there's different like cross country type stuff. So there's definitely some potential there. Um, but ultimately, it'll probably take uh, you know the right person to really want it to happen and then you know, some sort of like, I don't know, like financial move. <laughs> <It's all about laughs> what, what, about the money. Yeah, whatever, whatever gets it popular enough to generate. Uh, eventually, the Olympic the Olympic folks have to get to the, the degree where they look at it and say, oh, yeah, we can make a bunch of money if we bring this in as a sport and then it'll become an Olympic sport. Right.
0: No, that, that makes complete sense. Well, um, and, and actually maybe to shift gears just a little bit, something that I wanted to, to ask you about now you've held a number of world records, but the one that for me, I was like, Holy shit. How did he do that? The, was it the, tw- oh, we got hundred miles on a treadmill. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how, uh, here's a question I have for you. And here's where I'm going with this too. Like, the, the mental fortitude it must take to get through a hundred mile event is something that I'm just not, uh, I can't even really grasp. And I would love to get your take on kind of like what's going through your head during these different phases of the race, but at least like the scenery is changing. I imagine in most circumstances, like how did you maintain like the mental focus to complete 12 hours straight on a treadmill in a room, you know, like
1: h- how, how, <laughs> yeah, I was definitely for that particular event leaning much more on just kind of experience than I was specificity. I uh, I kind of just jumped on that opportunity real real last minute as a, oh, okay. a filler because I had been training for a flat hundred miler and it got canceled like I think maybe like six weeks before with all the COVID stuff in early 2020. Yeah so i was you know i put so much work in already i was like well i want to do something and and that Mm -hmm. was really my only option so i never i never ran past 30 miles on a treadmill before then in one session so uh i made a ton of mistakes (laughs) on that day and uh you know some of it was uh probably correctable had i done it before had trained say for 16 weeks on a treadmill and really got things fine-tuned on that yeah, uh, but for what it was, I think it was a really fun experience and kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, there was a, there's a guy, uh, um, uh, who just taggered Van Eaton, who just recently broke that record. Actually. I
0: just saw that out in like and, Illinois.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, and he put yeah. in just some freakish training for it. I think he spent about 16 weeks building up specifically for it. He put in, a, I think he even had a 75 mile long run on the treadmill. So he dialed it in. Like he definitely dialed yeah. it in and then it showed on race day for him or event day for him. Uh, In terms of like, he worked out probably a lot of the kinks that I wasn't, that I hadn't by kind of just spending the time and Mm -hmm. energy into really getting to know the treadmill and the ins and outs of that. And the psychological battle, like you mentioned, that is being on a treadmill versus controlling your efforts a little more uh, split second base. Because the biggest thing I noticed outside of just um, kind of figuring out, well, how do I mitigate the heat in the room versus like what I would do when you're kind of running through air versus essentially wallowing in your own heat and the heat coming up off the treadmill and uh, mm. you know everything else was just this like um, kind of mental uh, psychological like pull to want to gain control when you don't have it because you're just always responding to the machine regardless of whether you're changing the paces or not. And right. uh, it seemed like, uh, like Taggart was had, did quite well at that. I don't know how many times he stops to use the bathroom or anything like that, but it, it didn't, it, it couldn't have been very often given his splits. So, Um, he certainly solved that puzzle before he went into it. Whereas I don't think I did. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's uh, a testament to his preparation. Um, but it was a cool experience. Um, something I, I don't know that I say I would never do it again. I think I would do it again in the right scenario, but it would probably be like a big convention hall or something at like a trade show where you can have a lot more moving air, a lot more like cooling options and, just uh, some energy from the crowd yeah, and interaction
0: yeah. i mean mm-hmm. i weren't you you
1: were in your house right like yeah
0: you, yeah you're just in a in a normal room <laughs> there, there <laughs> like, a, like like most people have when they run on a treadmill
1: yeah there there was a fair bit of let's cross our fingers and hope this works because you know i mean even even uh with, with the the timeline we had and stuff too it's like i didn't really have a big opportunity to do a real good stress test on our setup so we 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 were able to kind of test things individually but not necessarily all going at once with like the live stream the guests getting phoned in and and the the air conditioning and the power to the treadmills in fact we had too much power running through the room i did have it in where my treadmills were shutting oh. down for about the first third or so so i was kind of bouncing back and forth between the two tread. thankfully we had two so i wasn't like just standing there waiting for it to get remedied but eventually when i think i got maybe a third of the way through we realized that it was just the amount of power we were running through that side of the house and we took an extension cord and ran it to the other side of the house you had to get on another circuit yeah so we got on another circuit and then it wasn't an issue after that so um <laughs> yeah so that was a little bit of learning on the fly with that one but it was kind of a fun fun event to do especially since there wasn't anything else really to target anyhow Yeah. Well, that was my first question. I was like, well, treadmills run that long.
0: (laughs) Like, you know, like I was like, can the treadmill handle that? Let alone like him being able to deal with the psychological piece. Um, and, And one, one question for you too, is, you know, you've, you've now done this, like we said, for 10 years, when you go out and do these races, are you still hitting these kind of psychological barriers that most people are familiar with when they try and do any sort of long distance run um or do they do they tend to kind of happen in the same sequence over the course of the race you know what is that experience for you like now mentally and i guess you know depending on how you respond to it like what is your kind of like mental approach over the course of the race
1: yeah as far as i can tell the same barriers are kind of present they they don't always pop up at the same time but there's a fairly kind of routine trend and i think what happens is you start to You start to recognize them and what they actually are. So there you learn, like, what is the difference between I just don't have it today versus I'm in a low point. And if I kind of stay focused and recenter, I'll get through this and then I'll be laughing about how I feel better after running five miles than I did back there, which is just a weird mind trip, because when things start going badly or you hit a low your mind goes straight to, it's just going to linearly get worse. It can't get better, but it can certainly get worse. And you you start thinking about it that way. That's like that. That's, that's a recipe for either having a death march to the finish or dropping out. Uh, so you just learn, I mean, you, I've had, you get enough situations where you have a race where you just have a really good day about hitting these rough spots and then pushing through them and refocusing. And then that gets you, if you, if you sip, Down and actually reflect on those experiences and are honest with yourself. You can pinpoint points in other races in the past where you didn't. And it wasn't because you couldn't, but it's because for whatever reason that day you didn't decide to focus in and mentally get over that hurdle. And I think knowing that is a pretty good driver, at least for me now, that when I get to those points in a race, I have to be honest with myself because I have that intel. I have to be honest with Mm. myself that, like, if I'm going to pull the plug here, it's it's it it can't be because i just don't feel like doing it now it has to be because uh you know for whatever reason i made a mistake that's uncorrectable or it's you know it's not a goal event so i'm not going to do damage when i need to be focused on something else or Hmm. you know that sort of stuff because there's definitely opportunity costs uh you know blowing up and pushing through (laughs) versus uh you know pulling the plug and getting out of an event when the damage isn't as bad uh and you have to kind of go through i think the process of running running a few of them to kind of figure out where that line is for you personally and then ultimately be honest with yourself so you can uh even if you do make a mistake and pull the plug early look at it and learn from it and take that forward to whatever event you're gonna do next and and kind of make sure it doesn't happen again and you don't make the same mistake twice
0: yeah and you know it, you seem um and i mean this in the best of of ways so calculated um, do you have kind of like a specific process that you go through post race, either immediately after in the days after where you kind of assess how that went areas of improvement or mm-hmm. things that you want to note for future events?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's I like to look at it through this lens. There's like some really big movers that are going to really like make big headway for you and get you most of the way there. And if you can get very good at those and really learn how to dial those in. Then then you can afford yourself the time and energy to kind of nitpick at little things and make marginal improvements that are going to maybe push you to the next level to a small degree. Uh, But you got to get those big movers out of the way first. So, you know, Mm. for me, the big ones are just the proper training stimulus that's specific to the race distance and intensity you're doing Uh, the rest portion, which I think is heavily steeped in sleep and then nutrition. Those are the three big ones that I'm always kind of like, let's get these all dialed in. And then once I get those dialed in, uh, I can start worrying about like smaller things like uh, how do I change the variance of this workout or do I take an ice bath after this workout and that sort of stuff. Um, So like, yeah, so it's uh, after a race, I'm definitely leaning quite heavily on the sleep and the nutrition side of that so that I am, you know, making sure that I am absorbing that stimulus and bouncing back quicker and not finding myself in a position where uh, I'm, I'm missing that window to kind of accelerate the process towards when I can get back out there and, and start training for another one. But I usually give myself about two weeks where, uh, I'll focus pretty heavily on getting in kind of what, uh, at that point in the season, I'll be doing a pretty low kind of almost strict ketogenic diet. Um, and then, uh, I'll just try sleeping as much as I can. And I give myself about two weeks to really kind of both physically and mentally recover from the Mm -hmm. event and during that time i'm also actively thinking about what do i want to do next in terms of what excites me because going into a training block i definitely want to feel both physically and mentally fresh and i really want to be excited to do the work that's going to be required to execute whatever course i train for so i'm thinking about those things while i'm going through that process to help really uh you know, dial that in and figure out what it is I actually want to do. So I don't find myself midway through the next training plan, wondering why did I pick that event? Or I don't want to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and since you brought it up too, and and your, your diet has been well documented and I I know we're coming up on time, but um, from the sleep side of things, how, how how much are you sleeping on average? Like what are you shooting for when you say like, it's a huge priority and I'm trying to sleep as much as I can. Like, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, I usually feel really good if I can average between about eight or nine hours a night. So if I start slipping under eight on average for a while, it starts to kind of catch up with me. uh, Or at least that's how I perceive it. Uh, If I in usually what will happen is if I have like a string of days where I get maybe seven hours, then I'll just, you know, when I get an opportunity, I'll just like knock out a 10, 11 hour night. And uh, that's kind of my sign. Like, well, if I'm getting less than eight, eventually it's going to come back to a point where I need to like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, if I can consistently get eight to nine, I'm like rarely ever feel like I need a nap. Energy (laughs) levels are super consistent throughout the course of the day. Training's going well and things like that. So uh, thankfully, I've been able to dial that in pretty well. And I haven't had a lot of trouble with sleep in the, uh, you know, the past 10 years or so. So it's been uh, probably a strength of mine, I would say. That's awesome. Well,
0: and if if anyone's watching this, uh, it'll be on YouTube, but I've been drinking coffee. So I, like I said, I, I, maybe I didn't say it on the show, but I've, I've three young kids and every once in a while we get a bad night, they're getting better. Uh, but yeah, the last few weeks have just been brutal and you know, I'm, I'm maybe eking out like that six to seven and a half. I generally try and shoot for seven and a half, but when I string together a couple days, you know, where it's seven or less, it's like, I feel it. Hence why. Anyways, my point was I'm drinking a lot of coffee on the show. Um, (laughs) But, well, and, and, you know, I read an article, I can't remember if you were interviewed or or maybe you had written it, but you said something that really resonated with me and it's, it's about being aware of stressors and how, you know, a stressor is more than just like the physical demands that you're putting your body through. Um, if you wouldn't mind, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, you know, what, what that kind of means, uh, for folks who might not be aware of what I'm referencing, <laughs>
1: Yeah. and I really like this topic especially because there's a big variance here and I see it every day when I'm coaching folks who have a very different lifestyle than I do you know I might be coaching someone like yourself who has three kids and you know that's a variable I don't have to control for so mm-hmm. uh, but it is a stress inducer I mean, I'm sure you love your kids and most people do but they do cause stress whether it be good or just bad a little bit. just <laughs> so, a little bit so looking at it kind of like uh you know you have a finite amount of like stress you can tolerate before it kind of puts you in a physiological position where you're going to have a hard time sleeping. You're going to slow down your recovery and things are just going to spiral in a negative fashion. Um, And you're getting those from all areas. You're getting stress from your training stimulus. You're getting stress from your family. You're getting stress from your work, your relationships, you know, if someone, Mm -hmm. you know, from social media, from all sorts of stuff. So I think you need to be mindful of those things and really just kind of take a little bit of inventory about you know, here's my three biggest weeks of training. So I'm taking on extra stress with there. Where in my life can I kind of reduce some of the other stress? So I'm not necessarily increasing my overall stress, even though I'm increasing my, my training stimulus stress at this point in time and kind of picking and choosing your battles within that. And everyone's going to be a little different there. They're all going to have different drivers and different like big stress points in their life. Uh, but, Um, I think when you kind of be honest with yourself and recognize where those things are, that's where you're going to be able to start from in terms of building a blueprint that's going to work best for you, regardless of whether it's ideal in the sense that like, you're going to get the absolute best out of your, your, your potential self. Because in most cases, that's just not a reality for people because, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for, I mean, professional athletes are professional athletes for a reason, because they know that they need to basically eliminate almost all other life stressors in order to take on the work and the training and the recovery that they're going to need to do to compete at an international world stage level at the Olympics and things like that. So like the average person is just going to be playing a slightly different game in the sense that they're doing that more as a hobby and less as a primary, like this is how I pay my bills uh, type of a mindset. And, and, and that's going to dictate a lot in the training and it's going to dictate a lot in just kind of how you navigate things, how you look at things, how you view things, how you how much you beat yourself up over a missed workout or, you know, maybe even how you do certain workouts and when you do them and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think for me, that was one of the really important realizations that I've probably had in the last, I don't know, handful of years is just how cumulative stress is. And, uh, you know, I would go through periods where I just, you know, I just, I, I love training and I, I set all sorts of different goals for myself. Um, but if I'm killing myself in the gym and then I also have stress at home, you know, not all stress is bad stress, mm-hmm. but just, there's a lot of responsibility. And then you have stress at work, stress in a relationship, you know, it all compounds. And then all of a sudden before you know it, you're wrecked. And then the ironic part about that is that, that you can't sleep. You're exhausted mm-hmm. yet. Like your, your sleep quality gets even worse. Um, so yeah, yeah that, that's important. Cut yourself a little slack It,
1: it feeds into <laughs> itself. It's like, yeah, one thing that gets out of control causes something else to unravel. And before you know it, you're cascading in the wrong direction. And, you know, like, I think you're right, though, like stress, stress is what you want to get better. So like, I like to look at it like you want to be micro stressing yourself over a long period of time and adapting versus taking right. on these big macro stresses and then being completely tanked for a week or two and then kind of doing that again and kind of going going in that cycle.
0: Yeah, no, and that, that's actually uh, a great point right there.
1: Um, I, I say that, but then in September, I'm going to do basically six weeks of macro stressing. So.
0: <laughs> well, we'll have you back on. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll hear how it went. <laughs> it went terrible. No, no, no. Uh, well, awesome. I, I know you have a lot going on uh, for folks who want to follow you both just in, in everyday life and uh, pay attention to when you do this big transcontinental run. Uh, you know, where where can we point them?
1: yeah, my kind of one stop area is my website at ZachBitter.com. You can find like my social media channels there, my coaching services, kind of the products and sponsors that support me. I've got some discounts for folks on there if they are interested in using the same stuff I do. Uh, that's that's kind of the the big one. Podcast is human performance outliers podcast. Uh, my most active social media channel is probably Instagram that's just at Zachbitter.
0: Awesome. And make sure and check that out folks. more great content from Zach. Over at the podcast. Uh, well, perfect, man. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. And I think there's a lot here that uh, people are going to be able to take away from this one.
1: Yeah. Thanks a bunch for having me on. It was a blast. It's always fun to chat about running and everything else that comes with it. You got it. Absolutely. And mommy. You better go ask mommy, daddy.
0: <laughs> okay. Another good one. This one yeah, was- I really enjoyed this one. Good, easy listening. Yeah. With Zach Bitter. That's probably why he has a great podcast. <laughs>
2: I'll have to give it a listen.
0: Yeah, give it a listen. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed hearing his perspective because his chosen sport is so much different mm-hmm. than so many of the guests that we talked to. And like he said, like, and I wish I would have asked about this, but, you know, we just so many great things to talk about. It really is a sport of isolation. Totally. Like running in general, but just... The sheer distances that he's running, even for like practice.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, I mean, it's hours. I was also thinking
2: about like, yeah, it's sort of isolation, but also I found myself thinking about a lot the people who are helping him because like you got to have, I mean, maybe he works it out himself, like where he's running to to sleep at night because he's sleeping at night, right? Like he's going to hotels and stuff, right? Oh
0: yeah. But he hasn't, he 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 hasn't done the trans, the uh, transcontinental one yet. I think oh, most, like, most of most like of his races. For the hundred
2: mile races, like yeah. he can't be carrying snacks on him. Like I'm no. sure there's people meeting him at checkpoints.
0: Yeah. Snacks.
2: And, and like what, does he carry water? No.
0: No. I think so it's interesting. Or does he
2: wear, wear one of those headgear things?
0: Uh yeah. He, he runs straw. he runs around with a hard hat with uh <laughs> yeah. two beer cans attached to it and he just has it just funneled right into his mouth. <laughs> Uh, so it's interesting. And this was what I thought was really cool about the sport. Each race is really different from one to the next. Yeah. So like you said, some are up in the mountains, Yeah. some are more like, you know, climbing, hiking than they are just like flat road running. So there's yeah, some
2: are 50, 50 miles right. and some are across country. Like it's such a vast difference and all in the same sport.
0: Yeah. And and like, it's incredible too. Cause like the jump from 32 miles to 50 miles is massive. Oh my that, God. Yeah. You know, but yet they're all grouped in together. And then the jump from 50 to a hundred, yeah. you know, it's just like, you can't really wrap your mind around it. Everyone, I think mm-hmm. can kind of use like a marathon as a point of reference, like, you know, just how much time it takes, the amount of training it takes. Yeah. And then, okay, try doing two to four of those in one day. Yeah. It's insane. Um, but you're right. Like, you you need a huge support network. And I didn't get to talk to him about this, but his wife's actually a really accomplished ultra runner. I was as well.
2: hoping the whole time that you were gonna ask because like you would like if you are doing that and spending you obviously have to spend so much time training if yeah. that's your profession. You would think you'd probably be helpful if your spouse is also super into it.
0: Wow, did I drop the ball there?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to hear about that.
0: Damn it. We'll have to get him <laughs> back or her back. Maybe him and her. That yeah, would actually that'd be, be fun. Actually cool. Yeah, she's um quite an accomplished ultra runner as well. I think she just won a race recently when I was looking into that. So, but yeah, awesome. I mean, you're right. These really kind of crazy individual sports often require a team around you. Yeah. So it is kind of counterintuitive. Then I was
2: also thinking like, how do you make money? Like, is there a lot of money in that? Because then mm. you have to like, think about the team that's required and like yeah. how much time it takes. So it's not like you can have a normal job too.
0: Yeah, I you know? mean it's it's a big investment. It, it's kind of akin to the conversation we had. Um, oh, his name's escaping me. I can't believe I'm doing this, but um, the adventure racing. Oh right, right, yeah, right. Like okay, in that sport specifically, you know, it sounded like not a ton of money in that. Um, so it's an investment, but you do it because you love it. You know, it's 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 like investing in your hobby. Now I think you know, like he Zach is the elite of ultra running yeah sponsors uh, I imagine for some of these races there might be a cash prize um but no it's not like you know you get into ultra because it's like a lucrative athletic endeavor I think you get into ultra running because you love it so yeah. so you're right like okay it's not just you getting out there to run like you have a team you, you know there's a lot of people who are investing time and money to support these things yeah, which know, is just so also, cool
2: yeah I was also curious if he met his wife through Ultra marathon running, or if they like met earlier and they both just got into it, you know. Oh,
0: so many good questions. I know. Damn it! I'm like, yeah, that's, all, that's a great episode. Now everyone listening are like, what did I listen to for an hour? <laughs> that sounds way more interesting than whatever Ken was talking about. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe uh, we'll try and get them both back on. That would be fun. Yeah, that'd be really cool. No, I know. I, you know, I wanted to ask him, but it's one of those things. Like, just everything was so interesting. You know, it's yeah. it's funny. You would think in an hour you would have an opportunity to ask.
2: I know there's never enough time. Isn't that funny? I know you always come down with like a list of questions that you didn't get time to answer.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what it makes me think too? Like these TV interviews you see that take like three minutes, you know, it's like what a just surface level conversation. Not that I didn't know that. Yeah. But it's like, you can't get anything out of anyone in three minutes, Mm -hmm. you know? other than like some prepped response to a very specific question. So yeah, totally anyways. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a beast. I mean, numerous world records. And the one thing we didn't get to talk about, which uh, if you do follow Zach, you you probably have seen this already. The folks who broke his world records, like on Twitter, he was like live tweeting, supporting, like rooting him on, like,
2: Oh, that's nice.
0: Yeah, which I think is really indicative of um, just kind of how he operates as a person, his character. Yeah. But also what he said, too, is like for him, it's like seeing my own limitations.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say that. Like he's not Shit. really competing against, in his mind, he's not really competing against other people. He's more competing against himself to see what he can do.
0: Yeah, which I think is pretty cool. And I, that yeah. was one of the takeaways. I, like I had. mindset. A, yeah. And I think, too when you go into something trying to see like, Hey, can I realize my true potential? You know, some uh, jealousy might not be the right word. Uh, Maybe it is, but you know, if you see that might enable you to appreciate when someone else has success as opposed to be like, Oh, it's threatening the record that I attained. You know, it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm trying to like get myself to where I eke out every uh, piece of potential that I possibly have. And I'm happy when I see someone else, Succeed because I know the amount of like hard work and dedication it takes to get to that point.
2: Yeah,
0: you know, which is pretty cool. Do you agree? No, you're, lo- you're looking at me like no. Eh.
2: No, sorry, <laughs> I don't know what my face is doing, but I agree. Did I
0: lose you? <laughs> You look like I lost you.
2: Did my eyes gloss over?
0: Yeah, it's just like I don't know if you were in like thinking about a summer house rerun or where your head went.
2: No, I was thinking about this. Still here. Yeah. I I apologize
0: for what my face was doing. It's okay. Just you're getting you're prepping for your first ultra run. Um, Well, let's let's bring you back into this one. What was your takeaway?
2: Um, I, I thought this was. I mean, it was a running lesson or like a racing lesson, but it no. also could be applied to life. Oh. You said, even if you make a mistake or have to pull the plug early when you're racing or doing whatever um, you can look at it and learn from it and take it forward to whatever you do next to make sure you don't make the same mistake again.
0: Yeah. I think that, I mean, this is, I don't know. It, it might sound obvious because we've now had so many conversations with people who are operating at an elite level. Mm-hmm. who are constantly like, you just learn, learn from mistakes, learn from mistakes. Yeah. They, don't, don't see let it, it as a you defeat. Behind, just yeah. Like, just, yeah. it's How, a data point. Yeah. How help can it you use, push you forward. Exactly. Um, so it would make sense that you would hear him say something like that too. But when he said that, you know, okay, like let's take this pull up world record I'm going after, right? Just because it's like at the forefront of my mind and it's very specific. There's days where I'm like, oh, I could really try and push through this. I'm not feeling great. Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like he was saying, like he now has enough data where he knows pushing through it is safe to do or pushing through it is going to completely blow him up Mm -hmm. and it's actually going to set him off course. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was something interesting too. And that's probably a testament to his longevity. Like he Mm -hmm. has become really in tune with what he can and can't do. Do you know how old he is? I meant to look it up before.
2: 35. Oh, wow. And he said he still might have another 5, 10 years in him.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like, I mean, really, just the sheer miles he has put on his body.
2: Oh, my God. Let alone yeah, just the I races,
0: the training. It's like, training, man, yeah. to, like, avoid injury for that long.
2: That's crazy. No, yeah, you,
0: you wouldn't think. Knock on wood. We're knocking on wood for you, Zach. you, would. You wouldn't think the human body could do that, quite I frankly. Know, I know. Just goes to show. So here, here's one thing that I took away from this conversation that I thought, Uh, really insightful because, and I'm guilty of this, like there's so many shiny objects or new approaches or like uh, really specific techniques that you can try and integrate to like eke out small percentage improvements. And when I asked him that question, he's like, you just got to focus on like the big movers first. Like what's going to make a big change. And I think he said like sleep recovery, injury prevention, like nutrition. Yeah. You know, so it's like sometimes we can get caught up in like all these new shiny objects and it's like, we'll take a step back, identify what are the big things you can do that are going to have an outsized impact and just like hammer those home.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> decorating a room. Like uh, you start I knew with your the- wheels
0: were turning. I was like, "Where I was like, <laughs> There's something going on over there." Yes, please. No.
2: No, like Decorating you start room. with all like the big objects first. Those are the most important things. Yeah. And you want to make sure you get those right. Yeah. And then you can add in all like the little shiny things.
0: This checks out. You know. Great anecdote. Yeah. I'm with you. You're welcome. Interior design. It's true though. What what's the saying? It's like tw- what is it? Oh, I can't. B- B- Pareto's principle or something. The twenty eighty principle, twenty eighty rule. It's like twenty percent. Uh, like in, it, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a business, twenty yeah. percent of your customers are probably in actuality driving eighty percent of your revenue. Mm-hmm. Right. So that means eighty percent of your customers are probably not worth spending as much time on. Right. As those twenty. Like if you just focused. So like to his point, right. You want to be a better runner? Identify what the 20% of you know, things are. Are you trying are. to one-up me? Uh, did I? a better Maybe. analogy? Do you like it better? I don't know, but. I don't I, think you do.
2: No. I mean, I like it. I'll retreat. Oh, <laughs>
0: also, speaking of, uh, I caught myself. I think I said Laszlo's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. It's Maslow. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> I'm sure there's a bunch of people listening. Who we're like, oh, idiot.
2: Dork.
0: <laughs> oh, you thought dork?
2: Yeah, I thought dork.
0: Why do you think dork? I
2: don't know. Because I
0: knew what that was.
2: No, I don't know. I just thought dork.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Well,
2: maybe it's your outfit. I don't know. <laughs>
0: uh, maybe next show you can tell me how you really feel. <laughs> well, I'm defeated. Um, <laughs> but no, this was another great one. And uh, you're right. Next time, let's get the wife get on. Get wife on, too. Let's get the wife on. Have them yeah. both talk about it. Let's hear how it really goes down. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, Cause
2: I w- I, I'd be interested in
0: that. I know you would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is another great one. Um, do you ever have any interest in doing like distance running?
2: Um, No.
0: Yeah. Why? I feel like you're um, actually good at it.
2: I'm not good at it. You're not good at the it? Most I ever run is five miles. And that's like, it's like rare. Uh, there was mm. like a time when I wanted to do, God, what was it? Like a hundred miles in a month. <laughs> I forget what it was. Yeah. It was like, and I was going to run like three miles. No, what's three miles a day? Yeah, it was like a yeah. hundred miles yeah. like in a month. Yeah. I, yeah. I wanted to do that last summer.
0: Yeah. And oh, then I remember I just, this.
2: Yeah. And then I was just like, oh, but I freaking hate running. So. See,
0: and that's, you know what? And he, it, it's kind of like, you just got to like lean into whatever it is you're into. Because if you enjoy it, you're going to do it more. Yeah. So whatever that is in health and fitness, you know, if you don't like running, well, don't force yourself into running. You know, find something else you do. Like, maybe you like getting yoked. You know, you like doing curls. I don't know. Whatever you're into. Uh, Kettlebell swings. I don't know. People know all sorts of shit. Uh, All right. Well, this was another great one. Um, Our marriage survived it. Mm -hmm. So, on the whole, it's a win. Yeah. All right. Well, if you made it this far, folks, uh, as always, thank you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. We've got a couple of really good shows coming up. We've got another repeat guest oh wait who <laughs> i'll tell you first guest we ever had chris barnard Oh, that's right
2: that's he's exciting. coming back on yeah, yeah i can't awesome. wait
0: uh that one's gonna be a lot of fun he's got some really big things going on um and his platform has like blown up
2: mm-hmm. even
0: i mean it was big already because he does a fantastic job but uh man yeah, he's, he, a
2: big deal.
0: he's crushing it he's crushing it all right folks well hey thank you for listening and we will see you next week
2: bye